Hello again, and thanks for joining us for this edition of the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide. Today, we're going to delve into the topic of demurs. Now, that's a topic that most prosecutors generally have only a superficial knowledge of. And, as a result, when the defense files a demur, it can be the cause of some trepidation. Hopefully, by the time this podcast is completed, any such fear on the part of the prosecutors will be abated. Although, it's not as if every issue in this complicated area has been resolved. There are some outstanding questions, one of which was just answered about two weeks ago. This edition of the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide is approved for 35 minutes of general MCLE. Our guest host for this podcast is Santa Clara County Deputy District Attorney Tori Poway, who, up until uh, a couple weeks ago, was known as Tori Smith. Tori recently and expertly handled a demur. So I asked her if she'd be willing to help me out by sitting in as host of this week's podcast. She was kind enough to do so, so thank you very much for joining me, Tori. Thank you for having me, Jeff. It's great to be here. Tori, since you are now officially the host of IPG, what is your first question? All right, my first question. Jeff, can you tell us what exactly is a demur? Well, in the criminal context, a demur is when uh, a criminal defendant claims that the facts that are alleged in the accusatory pleading, and an accusatory pleading is an information, indictment, or misdemeanor or felony complaint, that the facts alleged in the accusatory pleading are insufficient on their face to either identify a crime or it fails to give adequate notice of what the defendant is actually charged with or has some other defect that is visible on the face of the charging document itself. The term actually derives from a French word to wait or stay and it's infused with sort of a French type of disdain as essentially what the defendant is asking is they're asking the court to stay the proceedings until the court first determines whether defense even has to bother responding to such an insufficient, inadequate, and inarticulate charging document. <laughs> Interesting take, but are the grounds upon which a demur can be based specifically identified anywhere? Yes. Penal Code Section 1004 says that the defendant may demur to the accusatory pleading at any time prior to the entry of a plea when any of the following grounds appears on the face of the charging document. One, if the charging document is an indictment, the defendant can claim that the grand jury issuing the indictment had no legal authority to inquire into the offense that's charged. Or, if the charging document is an information or a complaint, the defendant can claim the court has no jurisdiction uh, of the offense charged in the information or the complaint. Two, the defendant can use the demur to complain or to claim that the accusatory pleading does not substantially conform to the notice provisions of sections 950, 952, or 951. Three, the defendant can use the demur to effectively make a motion to sever by claiming that there is more than one offense that's charged and that joinder of the offenses is not authorized under section 954. Uh, we're not going to be spending a lot of time on that aspect since this is the show about 
on motions to sever. Four, the defendant can claim that the facts, as stated in the accusatory pleading, do not actually constitute a public offense. And five, the defendant can claim the accusatory pleading contains matters which, if true, would constitute a legal justification or excuse of the offense charged or states a legal bar to the prosecution. Now, Jeff, that covers a fairly wide area, but what I want to do is use the podcast to focus on those areas and questions that deal with the general procedural rules governing demurs and also on the issues that prosecutors are most likely to see when the defendant is using a demur. Well, Tori, that sounds like a judicious use of our time. (laughs) To that end, let me ask you, does Section 1004 lay out the exclusive grounds upon which a demur can be based? Yes, the California Supreme Court has repeatedly stated the legal grounds for a demur to an accusatory pleading are limited to those specifically enumerated in Section 1004. Although courts have allowed the demur to be used to raise a due process challenge on grounds of lack of adequate notice as well. Can a demur be used to challenge the sufficiency of the evidence underlying the accusatory pleading? No. You know, sometimes... A defense counsel will file a brief, and essentially they're going to be arguing that the crimes alleged in the complaint uh, can't be proven. Essentially, they're making an evidentiary attack, and they'll put that in their statement of facts. But you have to correct these defense attorneys. A demur can only be used to challenge the sufficiency of the pleading itself. It's limited to those defects that appear on the face of the accusatory pleading and raises only issues of law. Jeff, one of the grounds for filing a demur you mentioned earlier is that the accusatory pleading does not substantially conform to the provisions of sections 950 and 952 or section 951 in the case of an indictment or information. And I'd like to focus on that area since that is one of the more common reasons a demur may be filed. So what do sections 950, 951, and 952 require? Well, those sections are are all notice statutes that explain, essentially, the form that the accusatory pleading has to take. Section 950 says the pleading has to include the title of the action, like People versus Johnson, and and it also has to identify the court where the proceeding is going to take place, and also requires that we state uh, a public offense or uh, offenses. 951 lays out the general form of an indictment uh, or an information, and it basically requires the language that we see in, in most of our charging documents. You know, okay, the defendant is accused in the county of Santa Clara of a felony uh, to wit murder in that honor about the third day of March 2000 in the county of Santa Clara. The defendant murdered Bill Brown, uh, etc. Section 952 says each count shall contain and shall be sufficient if it contains in substance a statement that the accused has committed some public offense. It says that the statement can be made in the ordinary and concise language, uh, everyday language basically, without any technical averments or any allegations of matters not essential to be proved. It may be in the words of the enactment describing the offense or declaring the matter to be a public offense or in any words sufficient to give the accused notice of the offense of what he's uh, accused of. And then it says, uh, in in particular, in the area of theft, it's sufficient to allege the defendant unlawfully took the labor or property of another. 
Although 952 says you can charge in the language uh, of the statute, Section 958 also says that words other than those uh, used in the statute can be uh, substituted if they essentially convey the same meaning. Okay. In light of those statutes, how much information regarding the crime must be included in the accusatory pleading to overcome a demur based on a claim that the pleading does not provide sufficient notice of the crime with which the defendant is charged? Well, what the cases tell us, Tori, is that an accusatory pleading is not supposed to be larded with evidentiary detail. Its purpose is to provide the accused with reasonable notice of the charges. And you'd be surprised how much does not have to be included. For example, the particulars of an offense, including the manner, the means, uh, the place, or the circumstances surrounding the crime in general, don't have to be alleged. It is sufficient if the essential elements of the offense are pleaded. So, Jeff, what about when the offense occurred? A charging document can still substantially conform to the notice provisions of, of 950 through 952, even though it doesn't identify specific dates when the crime occurred, unless time is a material element of the offense. Penal Code Section 955, a specific Penal Code section, says the precise time at which the offense was committed doesn't have to be stated in the accusatory pleading, but it may be alleged to have been committed at any time before the finding or filing thereof, except where the time is a material ingredient of defense. Though, if on its face, the accusatory pleading would show the statute of limitations has run on the crime, which is another basis that a demur can be brought, that can be the basis for a demur. And that's why we generally have to include information in the pleading showing why a crime for which the statute of limitations has appeared uh, to have run is actually not outside the statute of limitations. What about the identity of the victim? Does that have to be included? Well, as I mentioned earlier, 952 specifically provides we don't got to identify uh, the victim of a theft in the accusatory pleading. Uh, it's, it's enough to just say they and unlawfully took the labor or property of another. Penal Code Section 956 also says when an offense involves a commission of or an attempt to commit a private injury, a private injury, which isn't defined uh, in, in the statute, but based on the cases, uh, based on the cases that I reviewed, it means like a robbery or assault against a person. And if if it's described with sufficient certainty in other respects to identify the act, an erroneous allegation as to the person injured or intended to be injured or the place where the offense was committed or of the property involved in the commission, that's not considered material. Case law has also identified circumstances where Section 952 will not be violated just because the victim's identity is not alleged. Do you have any examples of that? Sure. Uh, California Supreme Court case from 2009, People versus Stone, the court said that where a defendant was accused of attempted murder by firing a single shot at a group of 10 people, it would not be necessary to name a specific victim. It would be enough to allege enough facts to give notice of the incident referred to and that the defendant was charged with attempted murder. You know, sometimes we don't even know the name of our victim. Uh, people, the victim may have fled. The Penal Code also has sections relating to specific kinds of crimes where the code lays out what does or does not have to be charged. What do you mean by that? 
Well, there are a whole bunch of these sections. They're all kind of scotched into uh, the mid-900s area. Uh, for example, Section 966 says if you're charging someone with perjury, you have to include the substance of the controversy or matter in respect to which the offense was committed, the court where the perjury occurred, and before whom the oath alleged to be false was taken. But it says the accusatory pleading doesn't have to set forth the pleadings, records, or proceedings with which the oath is connected, nor the commission or authority of the court or person before whom the perjury was committed. To know what section 968, which deals with obscenity, says you don't have to set forth any portion of the language used or, or figures shown. I mean, uh, keep in mind that a lot of these sections were introduced pretty early on, and uh, they didn't want the language of obscenity to be further proffered by way of the, the charging document. So they say it's sufficient to state generally the fact of the lewdness or obscenity thereof. And there are, like I said, there are a couple sections kind of like this dealing with individual kinds of crimes. Going back to something you said earlier that demurs are sometimes used to raise a due process lack of notice challenge. Can a defendant base a demur on the ground that the accusatory pleading does not comply with the notice required by due process, even if the pleading is technically in compliance with the requirements of sections 950 through 952? Yes, and this really gets to the, to the core or heart of this podcast. Understanding that most cases commonly cited by the defense when they're claiming a charging document does not comply with sections 950 through 952 are actually cases involving a demur based on the claim that the due process notice requirements, or in addition to uh, the claim of a violation of 950-952, there's this claim of due process of violation because the notice requirements have not been met. With that being said, why did the courts even allow such a challenge? Well, you know, this kind of challenge is a facial challenge, and that falls into the general category of, of demurs. They're all facial challenges. And the, the claim of lack of notice uh, as a violation of due process is, is intertwined with whether the notice requirements of the statute has been met. But it probably has more to do with the fact that there really doesn't exist any other mechanism to bring a due process challenge based on lack of notice at an early stage of the proceedings to statutes that are inherently vague, at least if the defendant's not being held in custody. If the defendant's being held in custody, they can always file like a habeas petition. In other words, if the accusatory pleading, in conformity with Section 952, uses the language of the statute, but the language of the statute itself is vague, uh, unless they allow this kind of challenge by way of a demur, how could the defendant obtain a dismissal on due process grounds without having to expend a lot of effort defending against the charge defense. But won't compliance with sections 950 through 952 always meet due process concerns? No. Sometimes literal compliance with penal code section, for example, 952, still may give insufficient notice of the charge defense to satisfy due process, which requires that a defendant be advised of the charges against him in order that he has a reasonable opportunity to prepare and present his defense and not be taken by surprise by evidence offered at his trial. That being said, though, Tori, in the usual case, courts have repeatedly held that an accusation 
that's pleaded in compliance with Section 952, when viewed in light of the transcript of the grand jury proceedings or the preliminary hearing, provides sufficient notice to the defendant to withstand constitutional attack. So in assessing whether a felony information or indictment substantially conforms to the notice provisions of sections 950 through 952 and or due process, can the preliminary hearing or grand jury transcript be taken into account? Well, the answer to this question is a little nuanced. Prosecutors must make sure to determine whether the defense is basing their demur on grounds the accusatory pleading fails to comply with the statutory provisions or if they're claiming it fails to supply the adequate notice required by due process. Now, in assessing whether an information or indictment substantially conforms to the notice provisions of uh, Section 950 through 952, the preliminary hearing or grand jury transcript is not actually viewed as like part of the information or indictment itself. In other words, we couldn't argue that an information that does not accurately state a public offense, for example, substantially conforms to sections 950 to 952 just because the defendant is going to get information about the offense uh, that is accurately stated in an accompanying preliminary hearing transcript. However, when the question is whether an information or indictment that literally conforms to sections 950 to 952 violates the notice requirements of due process, a court does have to take into account the fact that defendants generally get adequate notice of the criminal acts that they're charged with by way of a preliminary hearing or a grand jury transcript. In, in modern criminal prosecutions, the California Supreme Court has said that uh, they are initiated uh, by informations, and in that circumstance, it's the transcript of the preliminary examination, not the accusatory pleading that gives the defendant practical notice of the criminal acts against which he has to defend. The information it plays a more limited role, and it's an important role. It tells the defendant what kind of offenses he's charged with and, and states a number of offenses that can result in prosecution. But the time, place, and circumstances of the charged offenses are left to the preliminary hearing transcript. And similarly, the sufficiency of the notice of the defendant provided by an indictment must be tested not only in light of the indictment itself, but also against the transcript of evidence presented at the grand jury. Now, could the court look to the preliminary hearing or grand jury transcript when the demur is based on grounds other than lack of notice? No. Uh, for example, courts have held that a trial court is not authorized to determine whether a pleading adequately shows jurisdiction over the case by resort to a preliminary hearing transcript. In assessing whether a felony complaint comports with the notice requirements of due process, can the fact that there will be a preliminary hearing be taken into account, even though it hasn't been held and the demur is filed before the preliminary hearing? Well, that's a good question. You would think, since you know, the mechanism of demur has been around for over a century, that this very basic issue, whether or not you can consider uh, the fact that a preliminary examination will be heard in deciding whether or not a felony complaint, in other words, a pre-preliminary examination document comports with the notice requirements of due process, you would think that this kind of issue would uh, have been resolved a long time ago. But actually, it was only resolved in the last two weeks in a case called People versus Trujillo, 
Now in Trujillo, the appellate court began its analysis by noting that the cases have said, when determining the adequacy of notice for due process purposes, it's proper to review the allegations in the pleading in conjunction with the preliminary hearing transcript. But it points out that all these cases are silent as to how to proceed when the PX has not yet occurred. Nevertheless, the Trujillo court, so the Trujillo court, held that even before the preliminary hearing is heard, a court ruling on the demur still, still must consider the preliminary hearing's role relative to notice, namely that to provide the sufficient information to satisfy due process concerns. So yeah, you can consider the fact that there's going to be this preliminary examination, which will provide some form of notice, even though the challenge is to the felony complaint before the plea X has been heard. Jeff, in Trujillo, the defense cited to the case of La Madrid versus Municipal Court, a 1981 case, for the proposition that, in general, a court could not rely on a later provided information in assessing the sufficiency of a complaint. What did the Trujillo court say exactly about that argument? Well, the Trujillo court didn't actually opine on whether this defense characterization of what La Madrid actually stood for was correct. They simply pointed out that La Madrid was distinguishable, even if it did stand for that proposition, since it arose in the context of a misdemeanor case where there wouldn't be any transcript of a PX or a grand jury proceeding. It wouldn't even be available at any point to augment the allegations of the pleading. That's a great segue to my next question. Are the rules governing a demur to a misdemeanor complaint different than the rules governing a demur to a felony complaint when the demur is based on a claim that the complaint does not meet the notice provisions of due process? Yes. The cases don't you know, highlight this distinction, but th there are differences. I mean, they have to be, at least when it comes to a challenge that the accusatory document lacks notice, because in misdemeanor prosecutions, as we've kind of indicated, there isn't a transcript of a PX or a grand jury proceeding, like it, is, like it would be in a felony proceeding. So a misdemeanor complaint may need to provide more specific information than a felony complaint in order to overcome a due process claim the complaint provides insufficient notice. Can the fact that a defendant will be provided police reports and discovery suffice to meet due process concerns in the same way that, let's say, preliminary examination or grand jury transcript can be counted on to give adequate notice of the charges facing a defendant? Well, Tori, in, in answering that question, a distinction has to be drawn between police reports or statements of probable cause that have been attached and incorporated into the misdemeanor complaint and those that have not been attached and incorporated. Under the current state of the law, it's likely, although it's not certain, it's likely that a sufficiently detailed police report or probable cause declaration that is physically attached to a misdemeanor complaint and is expressly incorporated into the complaint, that that will be, uh, that, that it's okay to reference that document in determining whether or not a defendant has received adequate due process notice of the charges that he's facing. But if the police report is not attached and incorporated into the misdemeanor complaint, it's an open question whether the fact the defendant is entitled to receive police reports pursuant to prosecutors' statutory discovery obligations, whether that can be considered in assessing whether a complaint complies with due process, in the same way the fact that the defendant is entitled to a preliminary hearing or a grand jury uh, transcript can be considered 
when there's a demur to an indictment or an information. So far, no published California decision has held that police reports that are not incorporated into the complaint by reference can be considered in assessing whether a misdemeanor complaint has provided adequate uh, notice under due process. And at least three published pre-Proposition 115 uh, appellate court opinions have held that neither discovery nor an assumption that the defendant has a pertinent knowledge can be relied upon to furnish the notice required by due process. So, uh, towards, so far, courts have implicitly rejected the claim that the existence of these discovery procedures that might result in uh, defendants receiving the police reports on, upon which the complaint is based should be viewed in the same way as the fact that a defendant has a right to a PX or a grand jury transcript and how that's viewed when it comes to whether an information provides adequate notice. There is, however, an argument that prosecutors might want to consider raising in this circumstance. Now, wait, is this an argument that has been raised in any case as of yet? No, it's, re it's really my own thing. Okay, I just want to make sure everyone is aware of the source of this argument. All right, can, can I talk about the argument now? Yes, please, go ahead. All right, here goes. All right, so the leading case on this question is La Madrid from 1981. And La Madrid dealt with this complaint which started involuntary manslaughter. Now, one of the elements of involuntary manslaughter is that the defendant has to commit a generic uh, unlawful act or lawful act which might produce death in an unlawful manner. Now, in La Madrid, the complaint did not identify the generic unlawful act or the uh, lawful act that was committed in an unlawful manner. The La Madrid court held a police report could not cure the defects in the misdemeanor complaint uh, where the police report wasn't attached or incorporated into uh, the complaint. Now, in support of this principle, the La Madrid court relied on a case from 1978 called Salas versus Municipal Court. And in Salas, the court explained the basis for this principle. They said, look, patently, that's the term they used, is it patently or patently, one of those cases. The procedures for criminal discovery will not substitute for the due process requirement of notice to an accused of the charge against him, the charge against him, because the constitutional right of a criminally accused to be adequately advised of the charge against him is absolute, while one's entitlement to discovery is addressed to the trial court's discretion. I think I see where you're going. Discovery is no longer addressed to the trial court's discretion. Exactly. Both Salas and La Madrid and the one case that follows them on this point, were issued before the passage of Proposition 115, which imposed a non-discretionary, in other words, a mandatory statutory discovery obligation on the people. Now, Penal Code Section 1054.1 requires, among other things, the disclosure of relevant written or recorded statements of witnesses, reports of those statements, uh, if the prosecutor intends to call the, the witnesses at trial, statements of all defendants, all relevant or real evidence, that was seized or obtained as part of the investigation, and any exculpatory evidence uh, that uh, the prosecutor intends to offer a trial. Uh, in light of these obligations, prosecutors might want to consider making the argument that the information provided by police reports under the current discovery rules will give a misdemeanor defendant practical notice of the criminal acts against which he has to defend in a matter uh, in, in basically the same way that due process is, uh, is complied with 
because you have preliminary examinations and grand jury transcripts when you have felony defendants. Let's say a statute defines a material element of an offense by a reference to another statute. Is charging in the language of that overarching statute sufficient to meet the requirements of sections 950 through 952 or due process? In general, and probably most importantly when it comes to misdemeanors, where there's no PX or grand jury transcript, when a statute defines a material element of an offense by reference to other uh, prohibited acts, the accusatory pleading has to be more specific than a statute. In other words, when a violation of a statute depends on a violation of another statute, the language of that first statute is not by itself sufficient to define the offense. The offense actually consists of violating two statutes, and both should be set out in the accusatory pleading. Now, can a demur be used to challenge the validity of the statute, which the accusatory pleading alleges has been violated on vagueness or other grounds? Yes, and, and keep in mind, this is a different kind of challenge than the kind of challenge we've been discussing. And the challenge here is not to the, basically the validity of the individual complaint that's been filed in the defendant's case. It's a challenge to the validity of the statute itself. And in that case, the court, the California Supreme Court, has said that there are several grounds in 1004 which can be used as a vehicle to make this kind of challenge to the vagueness of the statute itself, including a paragraph one of 1004, which says you can bring a challenge based on the court lacking jurisdiction, uh, paragraph four, which says that you can bring a, a, a challenge on the ground that the facts stated don't constitute a public offense, and on paragraph five, which allows a challenge based on the fact that the complaint contains matter which matters which constitute a legal bar to the prosecution. So, Jeff, when can or must a defendant file a demur? The demur must be filed at the time of arraignment. Otherwise, it can only be filed with permission of the court. However, while the statute requires to be demurred, uh, for the demur to be filed at arraignment unless otherwise ordered, that's in Penal Code Section 1003, there's a rule of court that allows issues to be raised by demur within seven days after arraignment. So what happens if the demur is not filed in a prompt manner? Well, generally, facial defects in the pleading have to be raised promptly or they are waived. Uh, this, in, in particular, they're waived uh, when the case is uh, potentially appealed. Penal Code Section 1012 says that when any of the objections mentioned in Section 1004 appear on the face of the accusatory pleading, it can be taken only by demur. In other words, you can only use uh, and challenge these types of uh, errors by way of demur. But then they go on to say that failure to do so shall be deemed a waiver thereof, except that the objection to the jurisdiction of the court or the objection that the facts stated don't constitute a public offense, that, that's not waived. You can still challenge that by way of a motion and arrest of judgment, even though you haven't done it by way of demur. So does that mean that a demur has to be raised at the first opportunity? It, it probably should be, but uh, it's not written in stone. I mean, defendants who don't file a demur at the time of arraignment on the felony complaint, for example, are not precluded from filing a demur at the time of arraignment on the information. Uh, the court also, of course, has some leeway and can allow a defendant to file a demur uh, even though it's not done at the time of arraignment or within seven days of the arraignment. 
So let's say the defendant files a demur and the prosecutor agrees that a new complaint needs to be filed. Can the prosecutor just file a new complaint? Yes. Penal Code Section 1009 says that the people can amend any accusatory pleading without leave of the court. So if, we, if the defense files a demur, we look at the accusatory pleading, we agree with the defense, we can go ahead and amend it. We don't even need leave of the court to do so. Uh, so long as we make that uh, change before the demur is sustained or before the defendant enters a plea. So, Jeff, what will happen if the demur is sustained? Can we refile? Yes. You know, it's not the end of the world if the demur is sustained. Penal Code Section 1007 says that a court must, if it, a, a defect can be remedied by amendment, permit the indictment or the information to be amended. Uh, they can set a time period, but they can't set a time period for that uh, uh, amendment to take place beyond 10 days. It also says if the defector insufficiency cannot be remedied by the amendment, that the court may direct the filing of a new information or the submission of the case to the same or another grand jury. If the demur is to a complaint and the demur is sustained, the court, again, if a defect can be remedied, it can uh, allow a, a filing of an amended complaint within 10 days. If it is not done within 10 days, what happens? That's it. Penal Code Section 1008 requires that the case be dismissed. And if the defendant's in custody, he's got to be released. And if he's been admitted to bail, his bail has to be exonerated. This is a problem in misdemeanor cases if we don't act on the demur being granted within 10 days. Yes, it is. We can't sit on it. I mean, we, we only got 10 days to, uh, to make that amendment or request an amendment if the demur has been sustained. Okay, so I know you've allocated 35 minutes for this podcast, and we've reached our limit, so let me ask you one more question. Can a demur be filed in a juvenile case? Yes. There isn't specific statutory authorization for a demur in a juvenile case, but there's case law supporting the use of a demur in juvenile cases. All right. I know there will be additional information included in the IPG memo that accompanies this podcast on demurs, so if anyone still has questions, I'd like to refer them to the IPG memo, which can be accessed on the same websites that provide a portal to this podcast. Excellent way to end it, Tori. Thanks very much for helping out. Thank you for having me. Thank you.